Hope you all are doing well this morning. My name is Jamie Borchick. I'm a partner here at Rogers Park and uh, handle some of the preaching responsibilities. If you've got a Bible this morning, you can open up to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. Uh, today we begin a new series in the book of Judges that's going to take us through the summer. We've given this series the subtitle, When God is Not King, because that's the point of the book. <laughs> Judges shows us what happens to a people when God is not king. Now, Judges is perhaps the grittiest book of everything in the Bible. It can seem at times to be confusing, primitive, violent, and just plain weird. Accordingly, the church has often done what the church often does with difficult texts in the Bible. Ignore it. It's easier to swim in the safe, supervised, chlorinated pool of Paul's letters than it is to dive into the muddy lake of a book like Judges. But it's summertime in Chicago, and so we're skipping the pool and we're going to the beach. This morning, my job is to help us swim as we dive into these waters. So today we're going to look at the first three chapters as we get acclimated with the book of Judges. And to begin, I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. So if you're able, would you stand and read with me Judges chapter 2. Sorry for the reverb there. Get that taken care of. Thanks, Rick. You're doing great over there. All right. Yeah. Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harries, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. <laughs> it's like God is going to talk to us right now. <laughs> And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to the judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. 
Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods and serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. God, our King, this morning as we open this text, I pray you would speak to us that we, unlike Israel of old, would hear your voice and would heed what you have to say. Would you give us ears to hear your voice this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can grab a seat. So as we look at the book of Judges this morning, we're going to look first at some context and then two currents that run through the text. So some context and then two currents that run through our text. So first, some context. You can look at 1-1, chapter 1, verse 1. Reads, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. So, this first verse alerts us to the context of the book. Now, often when people think about the Bible, they think of it as a rule book filled with virtues or as an inspirational book filled with stories about great heroes. And while the Bible does contain many virtuous teachings and a number of inspirational stories, it is definitely not a rule book or a book of heroes. The Bible is fundamentally one big story. From Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end, the Bible tells the story of God. The story of a good king in his never-ending pursuit of his rebellious people. And the book of Judges fits into that story as a bridge between the books of Joshua and Samuel. It shows how Israel went from a clan-based tribal society, newly arrived in the promised land as described in the book of Joshua, And how Israel became a fledgling monarchy in the books of Samuel. It shows what happens when God's people in the promised land. It shows what happens to God's people in the promised land when God is not their king. And so this is how Judges fits into the story of the whole Bible. Now take a look at this image. It's going to come up here. Shout out to Jansen Loza for uh, creating this for us. Nice work on this, Jansen. This image summarizes the structure of the book of Judges. And we're going to take a few minutes here to walk through this because it'll be really helpful for us as we walk through the book of Judges over the course of the summer. So you'll notice that the first two chapters, I don't know if you can read this, but there's a double introduction in chapters 1 through 3. And the first two chapters form a double introduction, and the last five chapters over here form a double conclusion. The external wars of chapter 1 over here are paralleled by internal wars in chapters 19 through 21 over here. And there are difficulties with external idolatry in chapter 2 over here 
that then in the double conclusion, you see difficulties with internal idolatry in chapter 17 and 18. So this double introduction and double conclusion work together to show that the external threats from foreign nations in the first two chapters of the book become internal threats from within Israel by the end of the book. Instead of being a light to the nations, Israel has come to look just like them at the end. And in between this introduction and conclusion are stories of 12 judges. Now, these judges are not judicial figures in the way that we think of judges who sit on a bench and preside over a courtroom. Rather, these judges are like clan leaders in a tribal society. They're tribal chieftains. The judges play two primary roles. First, they are deliverers of God's people. They militarily save God's people from foreign oppression. And then second, they're catalysts for holy living. They stimulate some level of returning to God among the people. Now, among these 12 judges are six major judges who are numbered here and highlighted. And there are six minor judges. You can go back one there, Matt. Um, Six minor judges at the bottom that are in a little lighter text. And the minor judges receive just a line or two of attention in the narrative. They're interspersed between the major judges. And they serve to reinforce the patterns that we see as you go through the book. The patterns in the lives of the major judges. And then the major judges all feature a standard cycle that repeats over and over again. And you'll see it here. So... Israel serves the Lord, and then Israel falls into sin and adultery and idolatry. And then Israel is enslaved by foreign oppressors. Then Israel, in their misery, cries out to the Lord. God raises up a judge for them to deliver them, and Israel is delivered. And then Israel serves the Lord, and then quickly the cycle repeats itself. And on and on it goes throughout the book of Judges, one generation after the next. Now, if you go back to the other image... The first three major judges are what are called the in-group judges. These ones are largely faithful to God and they do what is right. Then the last three major judges are the out-group. They're increasingly unfaithful to God and they do lots of terrible things, as we'll see as we walk through this book. Othniel in chapter 3 is the ideal judge. He's a godly man who's consistently faithful to the Lord. But he actually gets the least amount of attention in verses in the text of any of the judges. As the story moves on from him, the narrator gives more and more text to each subsequent judge, while at the same time highlighting the increasing moral failures of each each subsequent judge. Samson, at the end, marks the uh, literary climax of the book, the high point in the storyline of the book. But he also marks the moral nadir, the the low point in the faithfulness of the judges. So by the end of the book, Samson is literally sleeping with the enemy. And he's only concerned with his own vengeance and vindication. So from Othniel, each judge gets more and more text. And each judge is more and more unfaithful to the Lord. And this is all by design in the narrative. The judges are often treated as heroes. But they're not. Rather, they're sinful, fallen human beings who increasingly reflect the overall depravity of the rest of God's people. In the book of Judges, the judges are just like everyone else. The refrain of the book comes in the double conclusion at the very end. Four times in chapters 17 through 21, the refrain echoes, 
in those days, there was no king in Israel. And twice, including the very last verse of the book in chapter 21, verse 25, the refrain also includes the summary statement, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king, and so everyone did whatever they wanted to do. And so this is the context of the book of Judges. Judges tells the story of what happens when God is not king and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so with this context in view, we can turn now to look at two currents that run through our text today and through the whole book. So the first current is the increasing ruin of rebellion. The increasing ruin of rebellion. In short, when God is not king, things increasingly go bad. So as the Israelites entered the promised land, they entered into a land filled with many other gods. Canaan was a hodgepodge of religions. People believed all sorts of things and practiced all sorts of religious and cultural customs. Their neighbors didn't go to church. Instead, they worshipped gods they believed would bring them success, power, fame, wealth, love, sex. In many ways, Canaan was like our city today. A pluralistic landscape of lots of different beliefs. And the question that confronted Israel from the very beginning as they entered Canaan was the question that confronts us today as well. It's a question of who would be their king. Will God be their king or will they be their own king? Will they obey him and follow him? Or will they reject him and rule their own lives and follow the gods of their neighbors? Will God be our king or will we reject him and follow the gods of our neighbors? Those are the questions that come into view as we enter into the book of Judges. Now the answer for Israel is clear even in the first two chapters. God will not be their king. Notice the litany of verbs in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord. They went after other gods and they bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals. The people rebel against God and they reject him as king. And from this point on, the book of Judges as a whole shows the ongoing degeneration of each subsequent generation of Israelites. God called his people to be a light to the nations, to shine his light among their neighbors. But instead, generation after generation, they cease to be a light and instead become a mirror. They just adopt all the practices of their pagan neighbors. It started out with little compromises on what they believed and on how they behaved. They start to adopt some of the beliefs and behaviors of their pluralistic pagan neighbors. And with each subsequent generation and each subsequent judge, they do so more and more and more. And the net result is that they repeatedly reject God as their king and in turn find themselves farther and farther and farther away from his goodness. By the final chapters of the book, those little compromises at the beginning have devolved to the point where they are actually raping and killing one another in a land that is filled with violence. Where everyone does what is right in his own eyes. So what's the point? When God is not king, things go bad. 
Rebellion leads to ruin. It's a pattern we see over and over again throughout the Bible. You see, God created people, he created us to live life with him as our king. To have him as the the sun in the center of our orbit. And when he's in the center, everything else orbits properly. But imagine if somehow you could take the sun out of the center of our solar system. What would happen to the universe? Everything else, all the planets, planets and the asteroids and everything else out there would go out of whack real fast. That's what happens when God is removed from the center of our orbit, from the throne of our lives. When God is not king, things go bad. Rebellion leads to ruin. So Jeff was the first person to get me really thinking about God. He'd been my youth pastor when I was in high school. And I had never been all that committed to church. I was far more committed to girls and sports than I was to God. But Jeff got me interested. He got me started. uh, He started me on this path toward genuine faith in Christ that happened a few years later. Jeff had a thriving ministry, a beautiful family, two young kids at home. And when I was in college, he got a job as a lead pastor at another church in the area. Then around the time I graduated from college, it came out that Jeff had been sleeping with his kid's babysitter. It was shocking. I mean, I I couldn't understand how this man that I respected so much, who had impacted my life so significantly, could do something so terrible. So I went to see him to talk to him about it. And he and I went for a long walk around his neighborhood. And he told me his story. It had started when he was in high school. And he started looking at pornography in secret. For over 15 years, he had looked at porn, and he'd never told anyone about it. Even when he'd been asked directly about it by other people, he had lied about it and kept it hidden. And eventually, what started with small compromises in secret grew into a full-blown extramarital scandal in public. When we started, when we talked that day, he and his wife were working on their marriage, They were seeing a counselor, and she was committed to sticking with him now that it was all out in the open. Except it wasn't all out in the open. The relationship with the babysitter had secretly continued, and several months later it came out that Jeff had gotten the babysitter pregnant. And Jeff decided to leave his family to start a new one with the babysitter. When Jeff was a young Christian, entering into ministry, When he stood at the altar and he told his wife that he would love her until death do us part. When he was investing in my life when I was in high school. When he took that lead pastor job. All along the way, he had no intention at all of ever blowing up his marriage and devastating his family and his church and so many others. But it happened. And for all the things that Jeff taught and said publicly... Privately, God was not the king of Jeff's life. At a heart level, from his teens on, Jeff had rebelled against God in little ways over and over and over and over again. Every time he looked at porn, every time he lied about it, every time he flirted with the babysitter. Now we can look at his adultery and we can be shocked and say it happened suddenly. 
But it didn't happen suddenly. It was the result of lots and lots of little choices all along the way, little rebellious choices one after the other. And the truth is that major sin never happens suddenly. It's always a product of lots of little choices along the way. It's a gradual descent into deeper and deeper quicksand. Little compromises lead down a ruinous path. Now, all of us here today are on some kind of trajectory in life. The ruin doesn't usually come immediately. It's usually many years in the making. For Jeff, it was a few decades. For Israel, it was a couple generations. Several years ago when I was in college, around the time all this stuff went down with Jeff, one of my mentors gave a talk where he shared the story of what his life would have become if not for Christ intervening when he was in college. It was his anti-testimony. At the time, his brother was in jail and his parents' relationship was a mess. And that's the direction that his life was going to. That was his trajectory. But all that changed when God became his king. In the years since hearing that message, I've often reflected on what he shared. Apart from God as my king, my anti-testimony likely leads down a similar path like Jeff's. When I was in high school, I was doing the same things that Jeff was, and I wasn't telling anyone either. Outwardly, I was a good kid, but I had all kinds of dirty secrets, and my life was fundamentally all about me. God was definitely not on the throne. The trajectory of my life was headed in the same direction of Jeff's. And if not for the grace of God in my life, I tremble to think about the ruin that my rebellion could have wrought over the long haul. What's the trajectory of your life right now? When God is not king, rebellion always leads to ruin. It usually doesn't happen suddenly, but it always happens eventually. When you take God off the throne, bad things happen. Good bad, Things go bad. And so if this is you right now, do something about it. If there are areas of your life where God is not king, your family, your work, your hobbies, your finances your thought life, your relationships, whatever it is, stop your rebellion before it gets to the ruin. And that leads us to the second current in the book of Judges. The first current is the increasing ruin of rebellion, which is the bad news. But the second current is the good news. And it's the very reason why we can and should stop our rebellion and turn back to the king. The second current that runs through the book of Judges is the astonishing character of the king. The astonishing character of the king. In short, even in the face of his people's ongoing rebellion, God is and always will be a good king. Look at chapter 2 verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the leaders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. The God against whom the people and judges rebel has, is, the, is the God who has already done a great work for this very same people. The great work to which the text refers is the great work of the Exodus. 
Just a few generations earlier, God's people had been enslaved in Egypt under a terrible king. The grandparents, the grandparents of the people that we meet in Judges were the slaves that Pharaoh told to make more bricks with less straw. Those grandparents were the ones who experienced the exodus, God's miraculous rescue of his people out of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the provision of manna in the desert, the protection of a cloud to shade them during the day, and a, a pillar of fire by night to warm them. The parents of the people we meet in Judges were the ones who initially entered into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. They saw God part the Jordan River, deliver on all of his promises of old, and provide them with a home. God had done a great work for this people. He had saved them and brought them into the promised land. He'd rescued them from slavery and given them a new homeland. He had been good to them. And even when his people rebel, look at what he does in 2.16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And even after those people didn't listen to those judges and kept turning away, verse 18 tells us, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. We see over and over again here God's goodness saving his people. He's the one who raises up the judges. He's the one who is with the judges. He's the one who does the saving. And don't get this twisted either. This isn't even because the people repent. The text tells us in places like 2.17 and 3.9 that the people groan because of their affliction and they cry out to the Lord. But the word for crying out means crying out in misery, not in repentance or sorrow. The people are miserable, miserable because of their circumstances, but they're not sad about their sin. God's deliverance of them is an act of sheer grace. He saves his people because he is a good king, not because they are good subjects. In fact, even Othniel, the first and ideal judge, Othniel isn't even an Israelite. He and his more well-known older brother Caleb are the sons of Kenaz. And chapter 1 tells us that they're both non-Israelites. They are Kenites. They are among the many ethnic and cultural foreigners who throughout the Old Testament attach themselves by faith to the God of Israel. So with Othniel, as is frequently the case in the Bible, God uses one of these ethnic and cultural outsiders. And here he uses him to save his people because his people aren't faithful. And again, we see that God is the primary agent of salvation. God is the one who does the saving. So this is the point. God is a good king who saves his people. The final and summarizing line of the first judge story of Othniel comes in chapter 3, verse 11. And that line says, The land had rest. It's a line that's repeated at the end of each of the in-group judge stories. The land had rest. No war no oppression, peace. This is what God longs for for his people. 
God delights to save and to deliver his people and to give us peace and rest. Don't miss this. God is the good king. My son Jet loves basketball. He's not even two yet, but whenever he sees a hoop, he gets real animated and excited. And he goes, hoop, hoop, hoop. I mean, he's a kid after his dad's heart. We're on a good track with him. But Jet knows where all the hoops around our house are. So a few of our neighbors have hoops in our back alley. Uh, There are a few hoops across the street at the park. One of my dreams someday is to have a basketball hoop of our own for my kids. You you dream big in Chicago, right? (laughs) Now, we've got a fence around our little yard. Uh, You remember those things, the yards? Uh, We've got a fence around our little yard because we live on a busy street where cars drive way too fast. But whenever Jet sees the gate of our fence open, he just takes off like a jet. (laughs) Sorry, Kenzie. (laughs) But Jet sees the opening, he sees the gate open, and he just starts running off toward one of his hoops. Now, as his dad... I know that him running off by himself could be deadly. He just wants to run free, but I want him to stay alive. So when I see him running off, I run after him and I grab him. And often when that happens, when I grab him, he'll just start to scream. He gets so frustrated that I won't just let him go. And I've got to carry him back into the yard where he's safe. What Jet doesn't understand, what he doesn't have the capacity to understand at his age, is that the freedom that he desires could be deadly. And as a good dad, I'd like to save him from those deadly desires and to bring him back to the place where he can be safe and at peace. Look, on a far grander scale, that's what God is like. He's like a good dad who wants the best for his kids, even when we don't understand it or appreciate it. We see over and over again in Judges and throughout the Bible that God relentlessly offers grace to his people, even though we don't deserve it, and even uh, often when we don't appreciate it, even after we've been saved by it. We frequently reject him as king, but over and over and over again, He runs after us to save us and to bring us back to the place where we can be safe and at peace in his presence. He knows the ruin of rebellion. He knows where that goes. But he is an astonishingly good king. And he wants the best for his people. And he's so good that even when we repeatedly sprint off toward traffic, he keeps running after us to scoop us up and bring us safely home. This is the astonishing character of the king. Now, Israel's fundamental problem in the book of Judges is they forgot this truth. They forgot. And that's our fundamental problem, too. We are so quick to forget the goodness of the king. And the problem is that amnesia leads to apostasy. Amnesia, forgetting God and his goodness, ultimately leads to apostasy, rebelling against him and turning to other gods and to all sorts of ruinous sin. 
when we forget the character of the good king, we are prone to turn away from him and turn toward other things that inevitably lead to the ruin of rebellion. Tim Keller says that our hearts are like a bucket of water on a really cold day. If you leave a bucket of water outside in Chicago in January, it's going to freeze over. It's just what's going to happen. All right? It's cold here in January. So the only way to prevent the freeze is to, to add some heat and to keep the water moving. And the way we do that, the way we keep the water moving and keep it warm is by remembering the goodness of the king. The remedy for spiritual amnesia is intentional remembering. We must intentionally build in habits that help remind us on a regular basis. So this is why daily devotional time is such a crucial habit for followers of Christ. We need daily time to read God's word. And it's not so much to keep learning new information. Like, if you read the Bible for many years over and over again, eventually you get to a point where you're going to know most of the content. You're going to know what's in there. So you're not reading it the way you read a new book to just get new information or learn something different. The reason we keep going to the Bible day in and day out is not to learn new information. It's to remember what we already know to be true. We need that daily reminder of the goodness of the king. So to combat spiritual amnesia, you need to daily spend time in his word. Our tendency to forget is also why it's so crucial that we make a regular practice of gathering together as a community of faith. If you've got a bonfire and it's, it's burning and lots of flames and it's nice and warm and you reach in and you grab one of the logs off that fire and you just toss it off by itself, you know what's going to happen to that, that log? The flame's going to burn out real fast. But if you pick it back up and you toss it back on the pile with the other wood, it'll reignite. That's the importance of gathering together with other believers on a regular basis. You take us out of this community and the flame burns out and we forget. But when you add yourself back into the community of faith, the flame reignites. When we come together, what we do, what we're doing this morning, we're singing praises to the king. We're praying together to the king. We're hearing the word of the king read to us and preached to us. And, and shortly, in a few minutes, we're going to take communion and we're going to remember the king's sacrifice on the cross. In all of these corporate activities, we are collectively remembering the goodness of the king and we're stirring the waters of our hearts. So to combat spiritual amnesia, you need to show up. You need to be here on Sundays. You need to be at your small group during the week. You need that so that you will remember and our tendency to forget is also why it's so important for parents to teach their children about the goodness of the king. It took just two generations for Israel to forget God. When parents are not intentional about teaching their children, their children will forget. So parents, our primary responsibility is not to raise good kids who are really moral who get into a good college and then succeed in life. Our primary job is to train our kids to know and to love the king. 
It's not the job of the church to do that. The church can help. But God puts that primary responsibility on us as parents. We are responsible for teaching our kids about God. And if we want our kids to avoid the ruin of rebellion, we as parents need to show them over and over again in our lives, in our devotion, in our love for them, in our priorities as a family, we need to show them the goodness of the king. Amnesia leads to apostasy, so we must remember. We must stir the waters of our hearts regularly to remember the goodness of the king. So, as we've looked this morning at this introduction to Judges, we've seen these two currents that run throughout the text. Our rebellion and God's goodness. And these two currents don't just run through the book of Judges, but they are the two primary currents that run through the whole of the Bible. I said earlier that the Bible fundamentally tells the story of God. And that story is the story of how those two currents flow together to show God as the great hero of the story of the world. The Bible, like the book of Judges, is not a book of heroes. There is, in fact, only one hero in the Bible, and it is only and always God himself. Over and over again, the good king is the hero who saves his people from the deepest ruin of their rebellion. And the place of the king's most heroic act, the place of his greatest salvation, the climax of the story happens when the king himself enters into the story in the person of Jesus. Jesus lived a thoroughly heroic life. He met people in their ruin and he saved them by helping them and restoring them. He came and he said, the kingdom of God is here. He came and brought the kingdom. And then on the cross, Jesus takes the ruin of humanity upon himself in order to save us. On the cross, because God's people had done evil, the king himself took on the oppression of the foreign power. Jesus died on the cross to take the judgment that God's people deserve for our rebellion against the king. And he died so that we might have rest. He took judgment so that we could have peace with God. In short, the king died for his enemies so that his enemies could become his friends. This is the good news of the good king. This is the climax of the story of God. And so as we dive into the book of Judges, we are confronted by a question that we must all answer. Who is the king? In our pluralistic world, where most around us do what is right in their own eyes. Who is your king? Is God the king or are you? Is he on the throne at the center of your life or is it something else? There is no middle ground. Either God is the king or he is not. And the book of Judges functions as a plea to us as its readers to enthrone God as king. King of our lives. King of our church. King of our world. He is a far better king than you will ever be. He is the good king. And so for our own good, may we as a people and may we as individuals enthrone him as the king of our lives. Would you pray with me? God, you are the good king. You are worthy of our allegiance. You're worthy of the throne of our lives. You want good for us. And we praise you for that truth. And I pray that we as your people would live with you on the throne that you would be the king over us in every way. 
I pray that right now as we reflect, God, that uh, things in our lives where you are not the king, that you would bring that to our attention and you would help us to repent and to put you back on the throne in those places. God, would you lead us and guide us in your good ways. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.